Father, we do hunger for your mercy and your grace. May you show it to us this morning, even the, in the preaching and proclamation, proclamation of your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so we're winding down in our series on Romans. We're in chapter 15. There's only 16 chapters, so we probably have only a few more months or years to go. Um, What's interesting about this section is I hope you're following in such a way that I follow in. I'm I'm not only seeing the mighty sacrifice of Christ, the the mighty truths that come through in the doctrine of justification, of sanctification. We not only see the presence of Christ here, but we see the personality of the apostle. And I feel close to Paul when I go into the word. Now, as you know, I don't have Lloyd-Jones to consult anymore. He, He didn't do a chapter 15 or a chapter 16. Um, I believe what happened in those days is he, he got ill and he had to leave the Friday night services that had gone on for 13 years. It took him 13 years and he didn't finish. Um, so that's why I joke about a couple more years. But um, I think I <clears throat> would probably... See, I channel Lloyd-Jones. <laughs> But no, I think I would um, share his closeness to Paul. It's the kind of thing he talked about Paul's emotional state a lot and the love that the apostle portrays. And he begins to do that here. And you don't do that by making hard, cold, literal statements. He can be very poetic and metaphoric. And I want us to see that in the way he presents his position before the church as the loving apostle of Christ in a church he's never been to, in a church he did not found, obviously, right? But yet in the last chapter, it seems he knows a lot of people there. You know, there's, and I'll get into this when we get into the last chapter, but there's a lot of objectors to the fact that chapter 16 is even in the book of Romans, because how could he know so many people if he was never there? But what it says to me is, and I think the... um, preponderance of commentators would say it belongs there and give good reasons for that, which I would agree with. But it shows that the Christian community was close and tight, even though it was spread out over the Mediterranean world. And he knew people, and people traveled. And some of the same names you'll see that were in Rome were in Corinth. And so these people came in contact, like when you go out and you drive around the country and you and you pull into Stuckey's or... Uh, Denny's or Waffle House or something. What's the matter? You don't go to Stuckey's? <laughs> One time my father and I were traveling together many years ago, and we got stuck at Stuckey's. That was our big joke. Um, but, um, and you talk to people, and you find out they're brothers and sisters of, in Christ, and there's this closeness. And all of a sudden, have you listened to so-and-so preach? And everyone, oh yeah, I love him. And you have all of this camaraderie. And it seems they had that even in the, in the first century. And so Paul knows these people, and those he, those he doesn't know, he knows of them. 
and he knows that they share with him a special bond by faith in Christ. And so I'm going to read this morning from chapter 15, once again, verse 14, down through 21, and I'll only make my comments based on three of the verses. But they go together so well, I don't want to separate them. I I want us to look at it as a whole. Um, We take it apart for understanding, but we put it together again to get the sentiment of the apostle. And so in verse 14, he writes, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me, in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedient, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not announced they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Father, give us a new and fresh insight into this passage of your holy word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so once again, in review, Paul writes, I myself am confident, he's confident concerning you, my brethren, the saints of Rome, and by extension, the mature saints of God in the body of Christ, He calls them my brethren, and he says that you are full of goodness, that you're filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. And I labored over this to some extent last week. Um, Got a lot of real positive commentary from the the congregation last week, Um, in some ways life-changing. I mean, it's, you know, I think sometimes we suffer silently with things that we don't need to suffer over because the word of God is sufficient. And to find out with confidence that the word of God can speak to our situation in the moment is a powerful thing. And maybe we're suffering something we don't need to. Maybe the spirit of God can bring healing to those feelings and memories and the things that we silently endure sometimes. So we took this verse last week and developed Paul's theme of admonishment. Able to admonish, he said. Able, that means you have the power, you have the ability to admonish. The verb form of the noun nuthateo means to put in mind. The word translated admonish. Nuthateo. It has a range of nuanced meanings in the Greek. It goes from teaching to correcting, from correcting to warning, from warning to rebuke. Indeed, all of these functions belong 
to the mature members of the congregation who are now long familiar with the Holy Spirit and his effect upon us. And Paul is confident that the saints of Rome can handle the challenge, be able to admonish, be willing. It's a loving act. From 1 Corinthians 10, 11, we read this. Now, all these things happen to them as examples. He's talking about Old Testament things that he just talked about to the Corinthians. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition. In other words, God wrote the Bible anticipating that I'd be here preaching it to you someday. He wrote these things for us, for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Nuthateo refers here to this putting in mind of the purposes of Scripture. So he uses the word nutheteo, admonish there, to put in mind, to remind the saints of the purpose of Scripture. In Ephesians 6.4, he uses it a little differently. He says, and you fathers, we dealt with this on Thursday evening, you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the nutheteo of the Lord. The training and admonition of the Lord. Of the Lord. In other words, we admonish our, our children, and who would who would ever say it's not a loving thing? You know, it isn't like we love our children when we say nice things or when we say the corrective things. It's some hatefulness going on. It's all a loving act. And so here it refers to the fatherly correction of a child to admonish, to put in a young mind the acknowledgement that the Lord holds them to a standard. Or what we used to say, put the fear of God in that child. Right? We didn't used to fear to say fear, but now we fear it, it seems to me. Put the fear of God in. A little bit different nuance. Titus 3.10 where we read, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition knowing that such a person person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. And so the lexicon says of this use that Nuthateo refers to the correction of a person who creates trouble in the church, whether of encouragement or, if necessary, by reproof or remonstrance, which is strong reproof. And from the lexicon, we read this. The difference between admonish and teach seems to be (laughs) that whereas the former, admonish, has mainly in view the things that are wrong and call for warning, the latter has to do chiefly with the impartation of positive truth. And so an example is given from Colossians 3.16, where Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching, and admonition. So they're different aspects or nuances of the same function. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Friends, worship is the forum for admonition. We are admonished, and not just when the 
pastor comes up into the pulpit and tells everybody how sinful they are. Now, it's not the only time. It's also done in the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs. The whole worship service is to remake us, to rebuild us, to perfect us before God. Teaching and admonishing go hand in hand. Teaching is to impart information, truth, doctrine, right? And admonishment takes that truth and insists that it be translated into a behavior. You have to change behaviors. Your whole life changes. The word of God has to change us in the totality of our lives, not just in our Sunday agenda. It's been observed that the good news of Jesus Christ is more than facts to be believed. It is a life to be lived. And so Paul puts that burden of teaching and reproof upon every believer in behalf of every other believer. So friends, we are indeed our brother's keeper. And yet there is still a pastor's care and an apostle's authority that God deposits in the church. The admonishers in the church, however, do not go about their work unaided. And by the way, I hope this doesn't become an invitation to pick on everybody and get all picky youn about all the little preferences and things. This is why he does this after chapter 14. With the non-essentials, let them lie. Let God judge him, he said, right? In the non-essentials. We have the word of God at our disposal. We have the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We're confident in the power of the sufficiency of Scripture. Don't doubt that Scripture can meet your need. And people have said to me, well, I don't know how it can meet my need in this. And you know, a good counselor might say, that's because the thing that you're suffering is unimportant. It's a perceived need that you need not have, or God would have addressed it. You're one of his, so put that thing away. And let's deal with the things that God wants you to be concerned about. Some of our needs and desires and things are are artificial and unnecessary. And we can strip them away. And the word helps us do that. The sufficiency of scripture. The Bible doesn't contain all knowledge, friends. But it does contain all things that pertain to life and godliness. Right? Peter writes of it. He says, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If you want to become godly as a living creature before God, a regenerate, born-again son or daughter of God, you have to go to the word of God for that. Because it comes, as Peter continues, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And so from passages like this one, I've built upon the apostle's case that only the godly can rightly counsel the godly. Does that make sense to us? Only the godly can rightly counsel the godly in things that pertain to godliness. You know? I mean, you can go to a, an unsaved plumber to learn about plumbing. I'm sorry, I always use plumbing. It's, 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 it's in my head. Donnie, you've got to sit up back. Any electricians in here anymore? HVAC guys, we've got a lot of those. Um, Go to the godly for spiritual help, not the ungodly. I noted 
that going to the ungodly for spiritual help is like going to a mortician to perform your next heart surgery. And I didn't get the proper response when I said that last week, so I'm doing it again. <laughs> let the dead bury the dead, Jesus said, but let the living counsel the living. And John wrote about that very thing when Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments and I'll pray the father and he'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. It's your special gift. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. The ungodly don't see him or know him or know he exists. They say things like, well, if there is a God, he's certainly not happy with us today. And you hear people say things like that. That's the ungod. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And Jesus goes on, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, he said. I will come to you. Friends, you may receive counsel from the unbeliever in certain areas of life. I'm quite certain I have received much wisdom from the unbeliever in certain areas of life. And sometimes they stumble on actual truth, godly truths. But you cannot receive divine counsel. Certainly don't seek it from the ungodly. The spirit of truth does not dwell in the hearts of unbelievers. For the message of the cross, he wrote to the Corinthians, is what? foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god same message but to the group with the holy spirit we recognize it it's the power of god it's the saving life-giving ordinances of the creator of the universe and to the unsaved it's foolishness it's one man's opinion one ancient itinerant writer who went to prison a bunch of times. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, we're not perishing. We're not perishing. For since in the wisdom of God, he goes on, the world through wisdom, I would rather say the world through its wisdom, did not know God. It pleased God, though, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who do believe. <laughs> it pleased God to save those who believe what most people think is foolishness. Don't expect to go to the unbeliever and have him take you seriously. It could happen if he's been prepared, and that's when people get saved. I still believe in evangelism. So, friends, you may receive counsel from the unbeliever in certain areas of life but not as it pertains to life and godliness. And by life here, we mean certainly eternal life. So again, he goes on. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. You see, there's an us and them thing going on in the scriptures. There's us, there's them. We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age. That means political correctness. That's a first century mention of political correctness. The wisdom of the age. Not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. 
can't depend on our rulers to be wise, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God. Now follow this through. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. In other words, it hasn't been revealed. That's what a mystery is, something that hasn't been revealed. But listen how he develops this. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As it is written, you ready? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So he reveals the mystery to the beloved. Stay with me here. God has revealed them to us through his spirit. There's certain things we just know by the spirit coming over us. I remember the, the, the day, the moment, the season of my life when that began to change my every thought. And I hadn't read the entire Bible yet. Um, I was naive enough to think that a young Christian should do that and start in Genesis and open it like a book. I was an English major in college. We did a lot of reading of novels and things. And I just would start in Genesis and say, I got to read the book. And I'd read through. And I hadn't read it all yet. And I said to a college friend of mine, a very intelligent guy, and I said to him, he was an Ivy Leaguer, by the way. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, Eddie, um, I'm really interested in the Bible these days. And he said something to the effect that, yeah, it's, a, it's the foundation of Western literature. And I, yeah, I know, but I'm interested in it in a different way. I'm interested in it as the written word of God. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. I haven't read it yet, but I believe it, the parts I've read. And the parts I'm going to read, I already believe them. Which, of course, was foolishness to him. He had no idea how that could be. But I already knew that it was. God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. So the Spirit already let me know that the more I would read, the more I would really know about God's intended will for us. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, so there's apparently a Spirit of the world, but we haven't received that. The Holy Spirit killed him when he entered you. But the Spirit who is from God we received, that we might know the things that have freely been given to us by God. Not that we might suspect that they might be right or helpful. We know. The Spirit gives us assurance. And then he says this once again, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. That's a mouthful to show us the difference between the world and the church, or between what you were and what you are. So when your secular counselor tells you to turn to your... Um, when your secular counselors tell you that to turn to your fellow believers for emotional and psychological and spiritual counsel is a foolish thing to do, don't be surprised. That's all he can know about it. 
So this guy that sits next to you in church, what kind of a degree does he have? Well, he, I, I know he passed, passed the plumbing course. I know that much. <laughs> he cannot know things that are spiritually discerned, and God would not have his spiritual receptacles led by the dead spirits of those who are perishing. I'm not saying I never got good advice from an unbeliever. I'm really not saying that at all. What I am saying is I have to remain skeptical of that. And they may even have my good in mind, but they don't have a connection with ultimate good. So there's a legitimate call for every believing mature saint to become competent to counsel in matters pertaining to spiritual life and godliness. Now, I have always said, if you're going to counsel someone and you want him to take you seriously, you really should already know that he knows that you love him. There has to be that loving bond. A child doesn't reject the father's remonstrance, if you will, because he knows the father loves him. The the bond is there. It's understood. It's powerful when the bond is there and you go to that person who is not only loving but is also wise in the ways of the word. And it can be a very healing experience. So there's a legitimate call for every mature saint to become competent to counsel in matters pertaining to life and godliness. And so we have our rule and we have our law. Paul wrote this to the Galatians brethren If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him. Right? Not you who are accredited. Not you who got high marks on the final exam. Not you who do a lot of studying, but you who are spiritual. You can't study your way into truth. It's been tried by the Greeks. Paul said, Truth is foolishness, even to them. The wisdom of the world couldn't make them smart in the ways of God. If any man's overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And I will say this to you, and this is the way I approach this. We can err in our counsel. We can err in our understanding of a person's problem. We can err in our understanding of the word of God. So when we go to a brother or sister in Christ with the thing that he's suffering from, if you're going to err, err on the side of mercy. There are blessings for those who are merciful. There's not too many blessings for those who are judgmental and condemning. Err on the side of mercy. Think it through. Put yourself in his place. And give them good counsel. Bear one another's burdens. That means put yourself in his place. You can't really bear his burden, right? But you put yourself in his place. You understand what he's going through. And go to it with mercy and not just with the pointed finger. And that's why Paul dares to entrust us to one another. Because we've learned the love of Christ first. So if you remain at all skeptical about your call to counsel, if you're uncertain of the competency of church members to counsel in the important areas of life, 
Consider Paul's words to one church. He wrote this. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Someday. (laughs) But how much more the things that pertain to this life? The things that we suffer through together. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? He wants us to make judgments about things he's already judged to the benefit of one another. And then he goes on in verse 15. He says, nevertheless, in other words, having said that, nevertheless, brethren, I've written to you more boldly. Now, this is interesting, and this is why I want to show you how the verses are connected. Yes, you're competent to counsel one another. You're able to admonish. You have all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. But that doesn't preclude me in my office as the apostle to speak to you boldly when I think it's right because the grace of God commits me to do so. And so he says, nevertheless, I've written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God. And so Paul is confident in the goodness of the saints of Rome, the mature understanding that he believes them to have, and their ability to hold one another to account for their continued growth growth in grace. And so he offers his commendation to them. Yet at the same time, he offers his own admonishment. And so he says, nevertheless, in other words, having said all that, having given you all that credit, having commended you for being wise in the word and loving to one another, I've written boldly to you on some points. For though you have the ability and the inclination to speak the truth in love, I too, he implies, have a calling to admonish you for the Lord's sake. And my calling is by the grace of God given to me. In other words, we have each other, but we still have the authority of the apostle. And what else do we have? So his declaration comes across as an apology. He's almost apologizing. You could do it, but you still need authority from the top down. He apologizes, almost apologizes, for insisting on fulfilling the role of his office regardless of the individual roles of our respective offices. What should we glean from this kind of approach that Paul, from Paul that is the Christian, if the Christian life entails, a, or rather, what we should glean is that the Christian life entails a consistent and continual growth policy. And if we've understood the condition of man taught in the epistle, it should not come as a, to a surprise, to our surprise that God sends his ministers to the churches in order to keep them striving toward perfection. So even though there's an amount of loving admonishment we can give to one another, 
we still need the apostles' authority, and we still need the love and care of our pastors. Now, having said that, we, I'm not saying we believe in sinless perfection. I'm not saying we're going to get there. But even though sinless perfection is probably a ve- too tall an order for us to reach, what do we do? Get a lesser goal? That's the perfect goal, so we take a mediocre goal? Paul said, imitate me because I imitate Christ. Well, no, that's too high. You're too holy. I'm going to imitate someone less than you, someone more of a sinner than you. No, you want, to, you want to aim at perfection, though you will never reach it in this life. When we see him as he is, we will be like him, John says. And if we can be satisfied in the light of Christ's sacrifice that our striving is worth the effort and accepted or even expected by God, we'll be able to resist the temptation that are ever present in our lives to deter us from the full measure of our sanctification. No, we won't reach perfection, but Paul tells us to strive for it anyway. He told the Ephesians to strive for it till we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We strive for it, though we may never reach it. So note that Paul, like Peter, is ever willing to fulfill the office of minister by reminding the saints of things they already know, and if they don't know, they should know. And we're forgetful. And so we get reminded. And that's the office of preaching and pastor. So we read from Peter, he writes this, for this reason I'll not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. I'm going to remind you of it even though you know it. But that's not all. He goes on to say, yes, I think it is right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, just so you know, Peter wasn't writing from a tent. He's the tent. For those of you who who insist on cold literalism, it's not always there, is it? As long as I'm in this tent, I will stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I'll put off this tent. Just as our Lord Jesus showed us. So the wise minister knows that time is short. Peter was an old man when he wrote that. He knows that life is fleeting. And redeeming the time is accomplished by exposing ourselves to continual reminders of spiritual truths. And so exposure to loving counsel is a sanctifying grace of God. And he's not remiss to supply us with such in the simple fellowship of other believers struggling to make sense of saintly responsibilities in a world of conflicting and subjective values. Friends, we have so much information entering our spaces today, entering, entering our tents today, right? It is essential we gather together on the Lord's Day and be encouraged and admonished and preached to. It's who we are. And it keeps us from being what we don't want to be. So the wise minister knows that time is short and life is fleeting. So don't waste a lot of time in your pulpit. Admonish the saints. The teaching and admonishing 
should be done in the pulpits of the church with the saints attentively, attentively in attendance. There was a great book. I've been looking for it on my shelves. I can't find it. Did I lend out to anyone in here my book by John MacArthur and Wayne Mack called An Introduction to Biblical Counseling? Somebody please raise your hand because I can't find the thing anywhere. All right, then someone raise your hand if you stole the book. Yeah, we couldn't find it. We can't find it here in the library. I don't know what, what I did with it. It's usually right there. I refer to it so much. There's so many quotable quotes in there. But alas, it's gone. One man wrote it this way, what I'm trying to say. And he was the writer of Hebrews. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love in good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more, as you see the day approaching. Assembling, fellowshipping, that's a word we use. You know, that's not a real word, fellowshipping. We're fellowshipping. Only Christians say that. That's half the battle. Just getting together is half the battle, because it's the Holy Spirit in everyone, working together in our speech, in our stories, in our complaints for how shall they call on him in whom they've not believed and how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher friends the lion's share of counsel and admonishment should come from the weekly assembly on the lord's day Preaching should contain the full roster of admonishment principles. It should contain declaration of God's word, just declaring it, teaching it to the people, correcting mistaken ideas, reproving sinful behaviors. All of that is done in the preaching. How do we know? Because Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. And so the gathering is necessary to our sanctification, our spiritual development. And preaching is the vehicle that delivers the news and nourishes the spirit and convicts the heart of sin. Preaching does all those things. And it should be done by those who have been given loving charge over your souls. Again, from the writer of Hebrews, remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, look at your pastors and see how they've done in life. Is, have they been steady in their faith? Did their faith produce for them a, a stable and a worthy life to follow? He goes on, obey those who rule over you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Just remember the bad things you do, I gotta go tell God about it. <laughs> Let them do so with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable for you. People are hard on pastors. You know, there was a time in this community when this was the only church that had a pastor for a long time. Pastors were coming and going in a lot of the other churches. Churches are hard on their pastors. So Paul writes to Pastor Timothy these very things. And note the care he takes to protect the pastorate. Paul is out to protect the pastors from 
unwarranted, unworthy attacks. And so he says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And I'm not taking offense that Paul called me an ox. Do not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. I'm treading out the grain, friends. I'm feeding the congregation. That's what he's saying. And the laborer is worthy of his wage. And then pay the guy. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. That's from the Old Testament law, right? Don't just have some guy come up and complain about the pastor and everybody, yeah! No, you don't receive it that way. You protect the pastorate. It's a gift from God. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Now, unfortunately, pastors only usually preach this when they're under attack. And I'm not under attack, so learn it now in the light, (laughs) not in the storm. Not in the storm. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. In other words, those who attack like that, don't let it happen. I wouldn't do it to you. Someone comes to me with a story about you. I, I receive it as though I haven't heard anything yet. I have to hear two sides of a story. Sometimes it's three sides or more. You know? I charge you before God, Paul writes, in the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. And then he writes in verse 16, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does he mean by this? The apostle tells us here that he's ever striving to fulfill his ministry in the churches. Now, if you follow Paul and how he expresses his love, sometimes he, he says he's a father and you know he's not really a father, right? In fact, we don't know that Paul is a father at all. He said to the Corinthians, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So he makes himself a father. He writes to Timothy, he calls him a true son in the faith. But we know that, we know that Timothy has a father and it's not Paul, so we know that Paul's not being literal here, right? He's showing his love through sort of poetic means or intimate means. You're a true son in the faith. And later he says, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy. So we're not to mistake Paul as being literal. We know Timothy has a real father elsewhere in the word. Um, But he's being fatherly, even though he's not a father. As an older man to a younger man who he's come to love. That's a great relationship when an older man is like a father to a younger man. Here in this verse, he does a similar thing. He doesn't call himself a father. He calls himself a priest. Now, when I was reading the verse, did some of your versions say priest or priestly? Those of you who have the ESV, it did. And now I I came across, across this because the commentary I was using used the word priest, and I thought, it's not in the New King James. 
Now, the meaning is the same, but the emphasis is greater with the word priest, and I want to show you why. He calls himself a priest. The verse is rendered more to the point in the English Standard Version, where we read this, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Does your Bible say that? No, because I taught you all to use the New King James. Shame on you for listening. And then from the New American Standard, we read this, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest of the gospel of God, so that my offering of, uh, of the Gentiles, my offering of the Gentiles, may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In other words, I saved them. They're my sacrifice to you, God. That's just an intimate way of expressing. He's not reviving the priesthood, friends. These renderings, I think, are more accurate to the text. In the first mention of minister in, verse, in the verse, Paul uses the word liturgos, which is usually translated minister. And in the second mention, he uses a form of the word hiereus, most generally translated priest. So he wouldn't say minister in both cases. It's odd that the translators chose to do that in some of the versions, the King James and New King James particularly. Now, why does he do this? Why does he change from minister to priest? I can tell you it's not because Paul is reinitiating the concept of the priesthood. The priesthood's passed away, friends, with the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. We don't have a priesthood. We don't have mediators between us and God through whom we pray, to whom we go to administer God's forgiveness. You know, in some of the denominations, um, forgiveness, first of all, confession of sin is done to the priest, and forgiveness comes through God to the priest, and the priest can withhold it if he wants to. Now, we know that that's not, <laughs> some people are laughing. Well, you didn't know much about Catholicism because that's how it works. But the priesthood's passed away with the fulfillment of the old covenant. We no longer need a priest. So why is Paul throwing in this priesthood stuff? We don't need a mediator between us and our high priest. We enjoy the doctrine that Luther popularized. I would almost say he discovered it. We call it the priesthood of all believers. Peter writes most famously on this, saying, but you... Now, when he says, but you, you've got to know who he's talking to. So you go back to the beginning of the letter, and the you are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God and to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior. That's who you are. You know, we can't go to the Bible and say, well, it's just written for me. Oh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's certainly not written to you. So when he says, but you, the unbeliever reading the Bible, can't say, well, that, he's talking to me. No, but you can say that. Because you have like precious faith with him. But you, he says, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Royal means king, and priesthood means mediator. You are a kingly mediator in the world. We are a kingdom of priests. Chosen generation, royal priesthood, a holy nation. Friends, Christianity is a nation. We don't think of ourselves that way. We pray for our nation, the United States. But we're a nation. 
We're his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's who you are. Paul is no more a priest than any other believer is a priest. And Paul wasn't even a priest before he was a Christian. He's, a, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. Paul was never a priest. He's not saying here that he is a priest. So what is he doing? He's expressing the intimate bond he feels with the people he had brought into the faith, those he has saved. And you'll say to me, Pastor, you misspoke. I know some will say this, so I have to bring this up. Paul didn't save anybody. Jesus saved them. I know that. And you're right. You've learned very well. He merely brought them to Christ and Christ saved them. And you'd be doctrinally correct. But for purposes of feeling and of personal ownership of the other brethren, he speaks to them as though he saved them. As though he sacrificed him something of himself for them. And so he writes this in 1 Corinthians 9.22. I have become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. It's just the language that he's using. It's not to be taking, taken literally. So here too it seems Paul asks of us a larger than literal approach to the word of God. He uses the metaphor of fatherhood to the Corinthians whom he taught and ministered to and rebuked. And to young Timothy, he called himself a father. He even went further with Onesimus. Remember Onesimus, the slave from Philemon? He refers to himself as a midwife, it seems to me. He birthed Onesimus. (laughs) He stood there and pulled him out of the birth canal. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten, (laughs) while in chains. Paul's not a father. He's not a... He's not a midwife, and he's not a priest. So why does he say it this way? He offers us a new ownership of all those whom we have led to Christ. Friends, in some way you own the people you've led to Christ. So he alludes to all of us as priests, and those we have led to Christ as our sacrifices. And so the office of admonishment once again becomes the essential act of Christian love. It offers a father's love. It offers a priest's sanctifying ritual. It's our teaching, our counsel, our admonishment to one another that in some ways best bespeaks our love of the brethren and our love for Christ. And so Paul joins all these functions in one. His admonishment, his purifying grace that he uses to cleanse the sacrifice. See, I'm cleansing the sacrifice right now by preaching the word of God. The the washing of the water of the word. It's washing over us and cleansing us. You see? And he's talking about it as though it's a priest washing and preparing ritually the sacrifice that he's going to make acceptable to God. Right? And his sacrifices, all the Gentiles who have come to the Lord through his ministering, his priestly service to them. And so he writes that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, an acceptable sacrifice by the Holy Spirit. 
He's acting, he's playing the part of a priest here. And so we too may grasp onto this concept, and the ones we bring in are our sacrifices to God. And the purifying grace of admonishment is the cleansing act that presents them to God without spot or blemish. And so he says again to the Corinthians, without the terse imposition of the literal or the cold reality of hard doctrine, he makes it personal. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, he writes to the Corinthians. And indeed, you do bear with me. And then he writes these words, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. A number of things here, friends. I hope you understand and feel the apostle's love for the Corinthians when he says that. Because that's from 2 Corinthians 11, rather. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do. First of all, that should alert you that he's not going to be literal. Bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Is Paul jealous? No. I betrothed you to one husband. Did he? No. That I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Are you a chaste virgin? No. But he's presenting this with a priestly aspect. So we can see the love, the sacrifice, the purifying grace of God in the act of evangelism, in the act of admonishment, in the act of preaching, in the act of teaching, which is the cleansing act of the body of Christ. I hope the love of the minister does not escape you by his speaking in this way. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you. For this look into your heart and into the heart of this, your loving servant, Paul. We praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.